Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 7th, 2022. Last week, we did a really interesting show, I thought, with Ada Ferrer, the New York University historian who's written this wonderful book about uh, Cuba, uh, an American history, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize this year. And in our conversation, she suggests that one of the key reasons why Cuba is an American history, and America, I guess, in a peculiar way, is a Cuban history, is because of geography. Uh, because Cuba, and here's one map of Cuba for people watching, Cuba is so essential to the geostrategic, geopolitical map of, uh, of the United States. It stands um, at the very center of the Gulf of Mexico. It's key to New Orleans and, and, and much of the eastern seaboard of the United States. In other words, I think what Ada was suggesting is that geography is destiny, which is an appropriate way of thinking about the world because it's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Geography is destiny, according to my guest, Ian Morris, a Stanford University classics professor and the author, not of a book about Cuba, but a book about Britain, Britain and the world, a 10,000-year-old history. And uh, Ian is joining me from the Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, just down the peninsula, another piece of geography. Uh, Ian, welcome. Uh, is geography always destiny, or is it only for odd examples like Cuba and the United Kingdom, perhaps for islands? No, geography, geography is always destiny. I mean, just ask people in Ukraine if you have any doubts about that. Right. We talked, actually, it's interesting. We, we compared Cuba, Cuba's relationship with the United States with uh, Ukraine's relationship with Russia. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a good, good comparison. I mean, Ukraine, the, the very name of the country, Ukraine, means borderland. So, you know, not surprisingly, for at least 6,000 years, people have been invading, partitioning, colonizing Ukraine. Um, yeah, geography is destiny. But on the other hand, it's up to us to decide what we do about that destiny. If you look at the headlines today, Ian, uh, you're like me, originally from the UK. Um, Boris Johnson, as always, is back in the news, back in trouble, seems to be particularly in trouble with his own party as a consequence of Brexit. Your book... Is a, is a very long view on Brexit. Geography is destiny. Britain and the world, a 10,000-year history. How do you make sense of Brexit in your book, Geography is Destiny? Well, I think this is where the 10,000-year bit comes in. Because a lot of people reacted when the British voted in June of 2016 to leave the European Union. Uh, you know, 52% voted to do that, 48% didn't. And the percent that didn't vote to do that, there's a sense of just astonishment and amazement. How could people think it was a good idea to leave the European Union? But I think if you take a really long-term perspective, the 10,000 years, because that's the point at which rising seas after the end of the Ice Age turned the British Isles into islands. You look at the whole 10,000 years, you see that the Brexit argument, there was nothing new in this. This was just the latest round of a 10,000-year discussion of where Britain fits into the wider world. Those, of course, are the words of a historian of, of antiquity. Um, you're also the author of Why the West Rules for Now, The Patterns of History and What They Reveal About the Future, and also War, What Is It Good For? 
Is this long view, Ian, useful? I mean, 10,000 years to make sense of Brexit, which is really just a footnote, probably even to 21st century British history. Yeah, well, I, I've been writing these books that you just mentioned. Um, and as I did them, I was sort of scaling up the, the way I looked at history, looking at longer and longer periods, bigger and bigger parts of the world, and generating these sort of global level theories about how the world works and how people behave. But um, anyone who's sort of trained and studies as a proper historian, you know that the global theories are all very well, but at the end of the day, history is actually made by real people. So I've been thinking for some time about what I ought to do is look at one particular real world problem and try to figure out how does the long-term global view help us understand what happened, if it does? And so when the, the British voted to leave the EU, this just seemed like this perfect test case. And a lot of people have been saying, you know, the deep history has nothing to do with what happened here. This was just an accident of the moment. But I thought, you know, this is a perfect place to look to see whether long-term, large-scale thinking really does help you understand something happening here and now. And obviously, I, I concluded, yes, <laughs> otherwise I wouldn't have written the book. You have your own personal history uh, in the UK. You grew up in Stoke-on-Trent. The final right. chapter in the book, you return to Stoke-on-Trent. You're a distinguished professor now, world traveler, speaking at events like Davos. What did the return to Stoke, where you grew up in a, in a middle or lower middle class family, what did that tell you about geography as destiny? Yeah, Stoke, Stoke is a place is very much a product of its um, geography that you know, the British Isles split into like, two two main parts which is like a lowland southeast lying near to the continent and then hillier colder even rainier north and west where the soils are thinner populations have always been smaller um there's less power and wealth and technology concentrated in the north and west and in the south and east so what has tended to happen through most of British history um in the parts that became England, English history was mainly about dealing with what came their way from the continent. Northern and Western history was about dealing with what came their way from England. And Stoke is just on the north and west side of the dividing line. But it's a weird sort of place because it's while it's on the north and west side of the line uh, with the sort of the poorer, hillier parts of the country, it's also in this area they call the Pennine Gap, which is about 30 mile wide valley that runs um, from the south and east uh, to the sea. So it's kind of a betwixt and between, a mix of the southeastern and the northwestern sort of um, parts of the country. And so going back to Stoke, seeing the reasons why people in Stoke voted overwhelmingly to leave the European Union. They voted two to one. That just um, just gave me, I think I felt a, a useful way to see this debate. You're a map man. Uh, That's right. Uh, and uh, you're a map man, uh, Ian. And, and there are three maps that you say define geography as destiny, at least in terms of Britain. Uh, the Geographical Pivot of History by John Mackinder which has a really interesting take on maps and geography. What was Mackinder telling us? Well, yeah, Mackinder was a geographer who was, he was active about 100, 120 years ago at the height of his career. And he was very, very conscious of the way geography seemed to be changing his meanings. It was very interesting, the relationship between geography and history. And so um, he 
I mean, his style of thinking is very out of fashion nowadays, but I just find it a very useful tool for trying to understand um, where the Brexit debates fitted into the larger British story. And, you know, there's a, a lot, Britain has a lot of history and Britain has a lot of historians too. There's probably more pages of history per head of population being written in Britain than anywhere else on the planet. But um, in spite of all these details, it seemed to me, the British history really breaks down into just three phases, this 10,000-year story. And in the first phase, um, it's dominated by the fact that the British Isles are really close to Europe. The, the English Channel works more as a highway than a barrier. Um, and this is represented in the Mappa Mundi, uh, uh, the yeah. Mappa Mundi, which you also talk about in the book. Yeah, I think this first phase gets summed up by this, there, there it is, yeah, medieval map, completely bewildering to look at, partly because um, north is over the uh, the side of the map, but east is at the top of the map, uh, that was the medieval convention, because east is where Jesus is going to show up when he returns, and the centre of the map is, of course, Jerusalem, because uh, it's a, a Christian map, and this map, I think, really sums up the way Britain, the British Isles were part of the European continent, so even though there's water in between them, um, because what what's what drives the, the story? Geography drives history, but history drives what geography means, and particularly changes in technology and organization. And so through almost the whole of British history, up to 500 years ago, in spite of so much stuff changes, the really important thing is that there is no maritime technology powerful enough to close the English Channel, and also no organizations like governments powerful enough to raise the money to pay for a fleet that would close the English Channel. So the English Channel, is, it's a highway, basically, not, not a barrier. So things flow from Europe into the British Isles, and that absolutely dominates the story. Until it's interesting, Ian, that, uh, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Charles Spencer's work. Charles was on the show a couple of months ago, um, he his new best-selling book, The White Ship, Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream, suggests that British history was made by this sinking of the white ship, I think, in the 12th century. I'm assuming, and you know, one shouldn't probably argue with Charles Spencer because he's the uncle of the future King of England. He'll have us imprisoned. But I'm assuming that um, you don't agree with Spencer, that these incidents like the white ship are neither here nor there. History is made by much deeper structural forces. Yeah, well, the, the white ship is a, is a great book. Um, but uh, as he makes very clear in that book, um, this was a case when the English Channel didn't function as a highway, definitely functions as a barrier. So a ship went down with the heir to the throne of England on it with all kinds of catastrophic consequences. But um, there's a, a key detail here. The crew on the ship was roaring drunk. Everybody yeah. advised not to sail on this st storm. Yeah, he, he mentioned that in our conversation, which is uh, for anyone who ever went on a ship between England and France is not very unusual. Yeah, well, I think a sound piece of advice, don't go on a wooden sailing ship in a raging storm when the crew is entirely drunk because you might end up on the bottom. But of course, for every voyage that ends up on the bottom, thousands and thousands don't. And this, I think this is what drives the earlier part of Britain's story. Can't you always come up with these long-term theories? Though? I mean, you might make a theory that you know alcoholism is destiny. Uh, certainly, in terms of, of British history, we we did some stuff on demography, and we had one demographer, again, a UK-based demographer, Paul Morland, who argues that demography is destiny, and then uh, somebody else who argues that demography isn't destiny. 
I mean, you can always come up with these long-term structural arguments, can't you, Ian? Well, I think the alcoholism is destiny one. That would be a slightly harder sell. I mean, that, that, that Even in the case of the UK? It's, it's destiny if you're the alcoholic. Um, but uh, it would be a little harder to sell it as an overall story. But actually, you, know, you put your finger on an interesting problem here, because this is the big challenge for big history. That, um, you know, on the one hand, we need to have people thinking about these really big questions, because otherwise you know, you're just dealing with the minutiae. History loses its point unless you can explain big things. But on the other hand, how do you actually test these really big theories? This is always the problem. Because um, like the way historians conventionally work is you, you define a topic and you go to the absolute bottom of the well you read everything that's possibly relevant to it. And that's why so many historians work on really, really small problems. If you want to ask the big problems, you've got to operate at a higher level of abstraction. You've got to be um, willing to build on the work of other people. So, yeah, this is a, is a real problem. How do you test the grand theories of the meaning of history? So you've got these three maps, which, according to you, at least explain British history. The Mapa Mundi, which represents the UK and Europe. Then the uh, the Mackinder book, which explains Britain in the context of it being a great power uh, for a short period of time, and then the third map, which you call the money map. Um, what does the third map tell us, uh, Ian, about Britain's place in the world? Because uh, not uh, Britain's role in the world. That's the great question we had a, your a, a fellow geographer a tim marshall on the show who has a new book out the power of geography um he writes in a similar vein to you uh and he he's hopeful that britain does have relevance in in a changing world but this money map this contemporary map doesn't suggest britain's centrality in the new world britain isn't at the center of this new map as it was of Mapa Mundi and of the Mackinder map. Yeah, and I think that's um, the, the, the harsh truth of it for the British. Britain is no longer at the centre of the world. And Mackinder's map was all about the fact that Britain had moved from being um, at the fringe of a West European stage, like it is on that Hereford Mapa Mundi map, to being the centre of a world focused on the North Atlantic Ocean. And it did that because of new kinds of technology, new kinds of organization, British governments that proved in the end um, very able and very willing to take advantage of the new technology and organization. But since about 1500, when it moves onto the, the Mackinder map, um, technology and organization have carried on changing, drawing in more and more of the world, basically shrinking the world. And we now live in a world dominated by three great mountains of money one in North America, one in Western Europe, and one in East Asia. And um, the challenge for Britain in the 20th century was how to manage these transformations, how to understand what the new emerging geography of the world meant. And the British succeeded really well in seeing off the great challenge from the Europeans and the Germans in the first half of the 20th century, but only managed to do that by putting themselves under the wing of the North American mountain of money. And what I suggest in the book is that British leaders, British voters now need to come to terms with the fact that the world has this third mountain of money, the Chinese mountain. And that's going to dominate the coming 50 years. And the challenge now is to figure out what can be done to position Britain most effectively for living in a world where this Chinese mountain of money is just getting bigger and bigger. Let's go back to Stoke-on-Trent, where you were born. What you're suggesting in a 
perhaps a rather ironic way is that Britain has become Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> well, yeah, I think mean, we've seen a lot of things happen within Britain um, in the last 50 years. And one of them has been a return to some of the old geographical divisions within the Isles, where the South and East, England, uh, has this incredibly dominant role over the West. And certain parts of the South and East, London in particular, are connected to the new money map, globalised version of the world. There's people you know, living in London who kind of feel more at home in New York or Shanghai than they would if they came to Stoke-on-Trent. And so this has reasserted itself. And in some ways, you could say, yes, Britain has, <laughs> Britain has become Stoke-on-Trent. Um, but only certain parts of it. I think what we've seen is this, this bifurcation. Uh, and, you know, like a lot of people talk about certain parts of the world being left behind. I think Britain, in this sense, Britain shares in the fate of the whole of the Western world. It's sort of splitting between a globally connected part and a rather disconnected part. And, and the rise of China, again, is the, the fundamental driving force. Ian, you mentioned in your book, uh, David Eck, Edgerton, uh, he's been on the show. I think Everton, Edgerton is politically to the left of you or certainly treats the history of Britain very differently as a new, his book is The Rise and Fall of the British Nation. It seems to me that you're suggesting that progressives in particular are suffering from a, a kind of false consciousness, that they don't really understand their role in history and that their notion of being in the future and being attached to Europe it is a is a form of false consciousness. How would you explain Edgerton's thesis to Edgerton himself? <laughs> well, I wouldn't go quite that far as <laughs> to say um, uh, in describing it. And I think, insofar as progressives are out of touch with the flow of history, I would say exactly the same thing about the conservatives. Yeah, they're both. I mean, they're both in the same camp. Is no one really understands where they are on the, to, to use your metaphor, where they are on the map, because the map is a 10,000-year-old project. Yes, I think that's the, the key thing. That um, you, you, If you read all the, the stuff that's written and said during the uh, Brexit debates, a lot of it's very, very heated, but none of it is new. Um, you can see the same arguments about where Britain fits into a larger world going all the way back to Tacitus 2,000 years ago, the yeah. Roman writer who produced the first... I knew you were going to bring up the Romans, Ian, because that's what you know about, right? Absolutely, yeah. No, it was the first extended discussion of Britain's place in the world, the first one that survives for us anyway. And um, the same arguments that guys like Nigel Farage and David Cameron were using in 2016, they're already there 2,000 years ago. And I think that's what Brexit was. It's just the latest reiteration of this thousands of years old argument driven by the, the questions that geography thrusts onto us. It's more than just geography, though, isn't it, Ian? It's, it's about agency. Um, and of course, the, the ancients had a particular interest in human agency versus the inevitability of history. What do the ancients teach us? about maintaining agency in a world where geography is destiny? Well, um, yeah, I think uh, the, the sort of big realisation writing this book brought me to is the way that geography is destiny, but it is up to us to decide what to do about it. And that's agency, of course. That's human exactly. agency, our ability to borrow some language from Marx, make our own history. 
Exactly, yeah. And as Marx went on to say, but not in ways of our own choosing. And that, I think, is the, the central thing here. Um, the, you can say you know, leaders have agency, voters have agency, people in Britain have agency, people in Nepal have agency. But Nepali history is never going to be like British history because they are a small land, landlocked country in the Himalayas trapped between India and China. And the British Isles are not. So there's a limit to what you can do with your agency. And the I think the key fact to take away from the history is um, you're never going to get anywhere unless you understand the size of the stage you're acting on, who the main actors are, and the direction that the action is taking us. And well, we all have to be historians then. And, and unfortunately, Ian, most of us aren't. We had Richard Obrey on the show talking about the Second World War. Again, a very distinguished, brilliant uh, English historian, Blood and Ruins which he, we talked about whether or not the Second World War is finished. Do Britons need to give up, or do the British need to give up their nostalgia for the past, their obsession with these slightly absurd events now, like the Second World War? Well, I'm not, not convinced that Britain's obsession and nostalgia with the past is any more pronounced than it is in most other countries. It just it takes a different form because Britain's got a different history. And, um, you know, it would, it's like, if you try to live your life on the basis of lessons you've learned from history, it, it might not turn out all that well. I mean, history is not a very good guide to the future, but the problem is it's the only one we've got. You didn't answer my question, though, on giving up our nostalgia. I mean, the British have a particular, or certain, certainly the, the, the Brexit crowd have a particular nostalgia for a romantic version of, of that history, your Stanford colleague Niall Ferguson probably shares that, conservative historians. You seem more of a centrist here, but are, are you suggesting a more hard-headed way of thinking about the past, both personally, politically, and collectively? Well, yeah, well, of course, I would never say a bad word about a colleague of mine, but um, yes, and I think... And he's an old friend, and Niall, he's been on the show, I'm sure he would appreciate her. A bad word, that kind of historian. The way you're presenting the issue as being the British are obsessed with this romanticized issue of the past, that itself is a romanticized vision of the past that you're imposing on the British. The British are also um, guilty, or to be honored, for having some of the most cynical and blunt visions of the past imaginable. It, you know, it's a British. Um, Prime Minister Lord Palmerston, who said that Britain has no eternal friends and no perpetual enemies. Only our interests are eternal and perpetual. And Britain and Britain acquired the name Perfidious Albion because of its willingness to throw everybody overboard whenever it was convenient. But wasn't that at its height, at its power, and, and that kind of realpolitik goes with power? The less power you have, the more nostalgic you become. So you go from Palmerston to Boris Johnson. Yeah, I, I guess I, I wouldn't agree with that either. Um, and I think one of the, another of the things, interesting things I learned writing this book was, um, you know, despite all the sort of rage and anger against Britain's leaders doing on both sides during the Brexit debate, they are no cleverer or stupider or more virtuous or more wicked than British leaders at any earlier period in history. If you think Dominic Cummings is a bad man, just read a bit about Thomas Cromwell. Um, our guys, yeah, the, the recent ones, they're no better or no worse than the leaders Britain's had in the past, I would say. Okay, so let's end, um, Ian, on, on what Britain should do, given this new map, the, the money map, 
given that at least in your view, geography is destiny. We had Philip Stevens. We've had so many shows on the decline of England, of what it's uh, Britain. And he has a new book out, Britain Alone, the FT Correspondent. It's an acclaimed book. Are you suggesting then that they make friends with the Chinese, allow the Chinese to open car or computer factories in Stoke-on-Trent? What exactly should they be doing in this new money map world? Well, that's the great question. Um, I think the first step is to understand the new world that geography is now thrusting upon us. But as Um, you've explained it, it's not that hard to understand. There's a coming power, China, a declining power, the United States, and Britain, which is Stoke-on-Trent. So what should Britain do? It, it appears that it is quite hard to understand it. Um, the, I think the tragedy of the Brexit debate was that for half a decade, British politics became obsessed with Brussels rather than Beijing. I think this was a vital half decade. Important opportunities were missed during that period. Um, but it's a bit chilling, Ian. We missed the opportunities with Beijing. They're running a, a kind of a, a digital Orwellian system. Are you saying we throw in, we, the British, throw in our chips and become allies of the Chinese? Well, stranger things have happened. Um, but I think this is the, the big... Now you're sounding like Lord Palmerston. There are worse people to sound like like than Lord Palmerston, believe me. Um, I think that the big question on the table ought to be what do what do British governments, and this is actually true across the West, what do Western governments need to do to operate on a world stage that is increasingly dominated by China? And um, until you make that your number one question, you're unlikely ever to have a satisfactory solution to it. And um, I guess the big choices are between trying to contain China and trying to um, position yourself in a way that will work well with Chinese dominance of the world. And anyone who tells you that they know the answer to that question is either a fool or a liar or both. We don't know the answer to that question. But we're never going to find it until we start answering it and confronting it. But Britain is a democracy, supposedly the first democracy, one of the key players still in Western democratic states. Why wouldn't Britain want to confront China as an alternative model with the United States, with Western Europe, as a way of running a a community, a political system, which is more more morally acceptable why not fight morally rather than cash in our chips with the chinese mm-hmm. which is a pretty rotten system pretty miserable place to live yeah well this is one of the big decisions that's going to have to be taken again not just by britain but all across the west in the 21st century and uh, if you look back on the history it's actually slightly depressing that On the whole, um, people admire countries that are rich and successful and powerful and start emulating them. Soft power tends to follow hard power. And this is a depressing thought, but it's one we've seen over and over again. Well, you're sort of we're we're, we're, we're getting on to your why the West rules for now. It doesn't sound as if the West is really ruling. Uh, Certainly, if we take into account geography as destiny, wonderful new book, very Uh, accessible, interesting, popular history by one of uh, uh, America's leading classical historians, Ian Morris. Congratulations, Ian, on on that book. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book? What else are you reading these days to make sense of the world? 
Yeah, I um, I have a funny habit. I tend to read multiple books at the same time. I'll read one for, I guess I have a short attention span. I'll read one for a while and flip on to another. But um, so of the recent ones I've been looking at, one which I have been enjoying um, very much is Andrew Roberts's book, The Last King of America, about George III. And uh, Andrew, he's made this you know, a bit of a... Uh, departure from himself, some of his most recent books, taking figures like Napoleon is the other one he took, and basically rescuing them from posterity. I mean, Napoleon, he wrote this book, Napoleon the Great, which is the title you know, people just don't use for Napoleon, even though he conquers most of Europe. Nobody calls him Napoleon the Great. And so Andrew makes this case, well, he sort of was Napoleon the Great. And the King George one, um, similar sort of book, uh, you know, very, very deeply researched, very nicely written, uh, and just full of these new ways of looking at what you you assumed you already knew about it, already knew that things were disastrous decisions. And he points out very neatly, oh, yeah, there's actually a reason why the guy did this. So this, that's one um, that I've been reading. And then another one, very different sort of book. Um, this is a rather more technical book, but it's a guy uh, by a guy named Paul Halstead, who's a, an archaeologist of ancient Greece, who spent 40 years out in the field doing fieldwork in Greece. But what he really loved doing was talking to Greek farmers. And so I, I was on a dig with him, one of the first ones I went on in Greece. And at the end of every day, he would go and sit down with all the farmers in the local coffee shop. And he spoke Greek just spectacularly well, understood all the local dialects and everything. And he's written this book called Two Oxen Ahead, which is like this study of Greek farming. And it's just this wonderful book. And if you ever are tempted to think that your life is hard, you just need to read Two Oxen Ahead. Um, you have no idea what a hard life is. 